Well, today we have two sisters joining our fellowship. And this is an exciting time, and it ought to be, both for them and for ourselves. We're all very, very glad today to have them with us. But uh, what I would like to do today is warn you as well. That excitement, that initial excitement often wears off, doesn't it? It often wears off, uh, just as it wears off in any new beginning. You know, the, that there's a reason, husbands and wife, that there is a time that is called the honeymoon phase. Right? There's a gladness there, and it seems like all faults can be forgiven during that time. But then comes the day-to-day life. And this is why I mentioned in our marriage series that so often the stories that we imbibe often end on the day that the man wins the woman and they say, I do at the altar. But really the more interesting uh, part of their life is what happens afterwards. The part that comes with until death do we part, where they are dealing with difficulties and they are dealing with life's challenges and struggles. It's the same way in any new endeavor you've ever faced, undoubtedly. And the same endeavor, the same danger rather, is here for the disciple. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 8 says, Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And here's the thing. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Meaning that persevering and seeing a matter through to the end is what matters. Not really the excitement that comes in the beginning of a new endeavor, to run your race well as a believer, brethren, excitement must make way to patient persevering. What will happen here in the membership covenant very soon and in the waters of baptism must carry into a lifetime of steadfastness with Christ. Not to have fits and starts, not to be hot one day and cold another and then lukewarm much of our life but steadiness, a kind of even-keeled disposition, a firm resolve to be with the Lord and also to be with His people. That's what the disciple is called to. And when the church has been at her best and her most spiritual, this is what the people of God are like. Steady with the Lord, not showing up to church twice a year or maybe once uh, whenever we need help from God, but to be steady, not showing up with the people of God when there's just a party to be had, but to be steady on our knees in prayer with one another, to bear one another's burdens, to go through life with one another. There's a steadiness that is required, and we're going to find that in verse 42. And so out of that verse, our theme is going to be to persevere in Christ's doctrine as well as Christian fellowship. And we're going to consider that under three heads today. The first is to find our gladness in the word. Second is to persevere in doctrine. And third is to be constant in communion, meaning with one another. So for our first head, gladness in the word. And I want to first begin by considering how a disciple's life begins. How is it that the disciple's life begins? Well, in the background of our text is Pentecost, 40 days after Christ's resurrection. The Holy Ghost is poured out on the church, just as Jesus promised he would be. And with the Spirit's unction, this sermon that we have read in the reading of the word, Peter preaches. He preaches this great sermon, the first great sermon in the Christian church. And what was the effect of the Spirit blessing the preaching? A mass of conversions, wasn't it? For 3,000 souls, this was the first day of the new birth coming to them from the Spirit. And as verse 41 says, these souls received the word gladly. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Great joy was found when they first heard the word of God. But I think what we maybe don't meditate on, is what kind of word was it that they had heard? What was it that they had heard from God? Did Peter come to itch their ears? Did he come to preach that they could have their best life today? No, you've heard what he preached. He preached to pierce their hearts. Isn't that what verse 37 says? He preached to convict them of their sin, uh, of righteousness and judgment, because that's the work of the Holy Ghost. He preached, and this is extraordinary, that these souls had crucified Christ 
Verse 36, God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. This convicts them. This crushes their heart. It's like a dagger in their hearts when the Holy Spirit comes into their heart. Now, how is it possible that these souls crucified Christ? These 3,000 souls did not literally crucify Christ, did they? No, of course not. You know that. But they were responsible. They were responsible. And believer, the thing is, so are you and so am I. We're all responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. Why? Why was he crucified? Do we forget it? He was crucified for our sins, wasn't he? Beloved, it's as simple as this. If you and I did not sin, Jesus would not have to be crucified. And this is how a disciple is born. When the Holy Spirit brings this into their heart, that Christ was crucified for sinners, even the chief, even myself. And when the Spirit gives us the new birth, our new heart, one of its first actions is to mourn. It is to mourn. We are convicted of our sinfulness as Peter was. You know, the same Peter, you think of this, right? In Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 5, when the Lord calls him, what does he say? He says, depart from me, for I am a sinner, O Lord. Right? The same sinner, the same Peter who preaches now that you have crucified Christ has himself fallen down before the Lord a a while back, years ago, saying, I am a sinner, And the heart that is born again mourns. And it mourns not just that it has sinned against God, which would be bad enough, but even more so, it mourns that their sin has caused precious Jesus, God incarnate, to be pierced with many sorrows, even their own. That was prophesied in Zechariah 12, 10, wasn't it? And I'll listen to this. This language, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, right? Here is the pouring of the Holy Ghost. And what? They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. To look on Jesus crucified, the Lord says, when the Spirit of God comes and is poured upon us, as it was that day in Pentecost, is to mourn over our sin, to mourn for Christ being crucified for our sin. Think of this. Uh, maybe if you have parents, if you're your parents, right, you can especially think on this, but I think for all of us can just think of one who has lost their firstborn child. That is what the grief of our sin is to be in our life. That we, it's, he's, the Lord says, they shall be in bitterness for Jesus as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. You think of the loss of a child and the grief that comes. And that's how we grieve over our sin. That's the grief that we are called to face for our sin. And this then, believer, every time you sin, you say even this sin, you mourn it, that this has caused my Savior to bleed. This has caused my Savior to suffer. And this is what causes a heart of repentance, isn't it? A kind of bitterness over our sin. Not just that I have broken some laws abstractly, right? But that my Savior had to die. My blessed Savior, who had done no wrong and had only ever loved and shown compassion, had to be crucified for me. Is this not the greatest remedy to sin as well? to think on these things, beloved. You think before you play with sin that my beloved Jesus has suffered so greatly under the wrath of God and this sin would not only be evil, right? Joseph said when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife, how can I sin and do this great evil against God? We add to that as well. How can I sin and cause my Savior to have to be, to suffer for this? And that's what causes us to flee, as Joseph did, from our sin. But even in that, the gospel is not just that kind of pain and mourning. This word was received with gladness, too. To know that God, that God sent Jesus into this world, and Jesus, or the Son of God, into this world to be incarnated, 
and that he, sent out of the love of God for sinners, suffered for you willingly in your place, is a thing of joy. That his cleansing blood that he shed willingly, he said he laid down his life willingly for you, beloved. Not not holding himself back, but he went willingly to his cross. Why? That his cleansing blood would cleanse you of every sin. Zechariah, as you know, in the 13th chapter continues and said that when Christ is pierced after they mourn, in that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. Right? Why is Christ crucified? To wash us of our sin and uncleanness. Now how do you gain the benefits of the blood of Christ? Well, Peter proclaimed in verse 21 the prophecy of Joel, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, is that not remarkable? Is that not marvelous? You know, again, I think we read that too quickly. Anybody who calls on the name of the Lord is saved. Who is invited? Do you see the blessed word, whosoever? Whosoever. Any sinner is invited to come and call on the name of the Lord. And what is the promise if you do? You shall be saved. Praise God. So, my friend, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, are you excluded from this? No, you exclude yourself in a way from the Savior. He says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That means no matter how heinous a sinner you are, You shall be saved if you call on the name of the Lord. In other words, I could ask it this way. Are you a whosoever? If so, call on his name and you shall be saved and you will know the Lord and he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And if you are a believer then, right, on the other side, right, you have called on the name of the Lord. Do you not find such great assurance in a verse like that? Right, as you wonder, could God, would God save me? And you struggle with your faith. All you have to ask is, have I called on the name of the Lord by faith? I am his. He has promised I shall be saved. This is the joy that comes with the gospel. Sorrow, right, that I have caused my Savior to bleed. But joy that he bled willingly to save a whosoever sinner as myself totally undeserved, totally unearned by myself. And the joy also comes, right, knowing that Christ did not just die, but as was prophesied, that he was raised again from the dead, and he is the Lord over all. Praise God, as was promised to David, as Peter here brings out. And so, now I think you can understand why they received the word gladly convicted of their sin, but also the hope of Christ crucified to save sinners. And all of that, by the word of God, was poured into their hearts by the Holy Ghost from heaven. And so in verse 41, those that gladly received his word were baptized and were added unto them. And that means added unto the number of the church. That's what will happen with one of the sisters today who will be coming into membership. And we find in that verse a truth that is often neglected of baptism, which is that it is a sign that one has entered the visible church, right? Not a particular local church, right? For instance, her baptism will not signify that she is a member of Dallas RPC, but she is a member of the church universal, of the church Catholic small c. And we often neglect this idea in baptism, and we then neglect to understand it, especially as the sign is administered to the promise given to us and our children. But regardless, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been made all to drink into one Spirit. What that means is that the sign of baptism signifies that the person being baptized is entering the church of Jesus Christ. And as the sign of circumcision before it, which is what circumcision signified as well, that this one belongs to the church under age, belongs to Israel. And as with circumcision before it, 
it serves as a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. And it testifies of something quite remarkable, what we've heard of the gospel, that the, one, that the righteousness of the one being baptized was imputed to them, and it's not inherent to them. That the one covered with the waters is one who is covered with the righteousness of Christ and not their own goodness and not their own righteousness, but that their filthiness is covered, even as we providentially read Ezekiel 16 this day, right? that God comes to cover our filthiness with the wedding garment. And that's what baptism signifies. As Romans 4.11 said of Abraham, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed or credited unto them also. And that's what uh, baptism signifies. If you go to Colossians 2.11, won't turn there now, you see baptism and uh, circumcision equated together. And so for the 3,000 here in the book of Acts at Pentecost, and for our sister today, their baptism signifies that their righteousness was credited to them by Christ. And it's not inherent to them. It signifies that the person under the waters of baptism is a sinner. But all of their sin is counted as washed away by the blood of Christ. And that his righteousness now covers them. And that they then lack no righteousness because they have the righteousness of Christ freely given to them. And that's what's beautiful, right? In Revelation 1.5, when we think of the washing blood of Christ unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And as the water is poured on our head, that is what you are going to see. Other things as well are signified. Romans 6.5, uh, we find that our baptism shows union with Christ's death and resurrection. We've covered that in prior sermons, so I won't cover that today. But for our theme of steadfastness and being steady with the Lord and persevering, what is often neglected is that baptism signifies our need to walk with the Lord. It also is not a sign of the excitement of a beginning of a matter, but a need to persevere. Romans 6.4, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so what? We also should walk in what? Newness of life. Newness of life. Now, is this not often a truth of baptism we neglect? We are to see ourselves as what? Dead to sin and one constrained to walk in newness of life. You see, again, yes, baptism is a beginning, but it signifies a perpetual walk with the Lord, doesn't it? Believer, for you who are baptized, when our sister has the water poured on her head, think not just on herself, but also on you. That as one baptized, you have the sign and seal of the covenant. You say, I have had that water applied to myself. That my baptism testifies of the doctrine of the sixth chapter of the book of Romans. If you know that chapter, you know that it calls you to walk in the Spirit, doesn't it? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? That's the question that baptism asks you. Will I still sin though I have been baptized into Christ, united with his death? How can I walk in sin when God has cleansed me of sin? And yes, we understand we will still sin in this life. But we are talking about our desire and our need to seek the grace of God, right? Not just for forgiveness, but that we would also walk in newness of life. I praise God that Romans 7 comes after Romans 6, right? That there is a, a wrestling with the Lord over our sin nature, but we are called to walk in newness of life. And I also praise God for Romans chapter 8 that says, there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. So we do walk in newness of life by repenting often, turning to the Lord for his mercy and his grace. But we see in our baptism a sign that we are to persevere with the Lord and not just see our baptism as the washing away of sins and then we can go off and do whatever we'd like. 
We are to be with the Lord through thick and thin. Now, as a matter I want to cover today as our sister is being baptized, uh, if you're not Presbyterian, you may be confused why I will pour water, and you'll see the, the container, the vessel there. I will pour water on the head of our sister instead of immerse her, as many are, are immersed in, especially this part of the country. Well, we believe that the pouring uh, of water on the head was the practice of the apostolic church, which is not to say that immersion is invalid. We will accept one who is baptized by immersion. But we do this because we believe pouring is the action signified by the Holy Spirit and his work. After all, in verse 18, we read Joel's prophecy that God said, I will pour out my spirit. Right? And it's that pouring out of the spirit of God upon us that is shown by the pouring out of water on the head from above. You remember at the baptism of Christ, right there standing in the waters, John and Jesus, and the Holy Ghost comes down and alights on Christ, this pouring action out of heaven. And we believe that as in those ancient portrayals of baptism, that John would have poured water on the head, which would um, be exactly what is happening in the heavens as the Holy Spirit comes down. In Isaiah 44, verse 3, we find another connection between pouring and the Spirit. For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. Uh, I just thought of this. You know, the one being baptized was a, as a covenant child, uh, grew up as a covenant child, is now being baptized here. But what a wonderful thing, right? I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. And we see that promise here that one who was born into the household of God is having the Spirit of God signified in the baptism poured upon her. But there is something else wonderful about Isaiah 44, verse 3. I will pour water upon him that is thirsty. What do you see then in the waters of baptism as it is poured out? That filling, right? Are you thirsty? What did Jesus say? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? The Spirit comes to fill you. What did Christ say to the woman of Samaria? But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Believer, what does your baptism signify? It signifies that Christ has filled you with his righteousness and you will never lack for righteousness because he has filled you. And when our sister is baptized, you must see that promise for yourself, right? Her baptism is not in some sense just for her. It is also for you who believe to see this as a spiritual reality portrayed in a physical way that you're, you and my, our dull senses can understand. This is a picture of the work of God and we rejoice in it today. And so we hear that those who heard the word with gladness were baptized. And this is where we come into our theme. And I'll try to move a little quicker here. That our initial gladness over all of that must produce perseverance. You remember here uh, our Luke series, right? We were recently in the parable of the soils in Luke 8. What was the warning of the seed that fell on the rock? Right, we hear that there are here some that receive the word with gladness. Remember the parable of the soils. They on the rock are they which when they hear receive the word with joy. Here we are, some who receive the word with gladness. And these have no root, which for a while believe, and in time of temptation fall away. This is the warning for every disciple, especially as they come to make a profession of faith on the word of God. It's that we must see that our receiving of the word with joy has roots. Roots that come deep into our soul. Because many, beloved, hear the word and are joyful for a moment. There are many who are eager to take the membership vows, but then they are tempted to reject Christ because they desire a certain kind of sin or a great trial of faith comes over them. And what happens? They run away from the word of God. They apostatize, and that gladness which was there was but a vapor, and it evaporates because the word hadn't actually taken root in their hearts, and they had not actually been regenerated by the word of God. And that's a chilling thought for us all. And that's what we're going to consider in our second head, which is persevering in doctrine. 
Well, we see here that the thousands that gladly received the word at Pentecost had the word take root in them. That is shown in verse 42. And they continued steadfastly, there's that word, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Steadfast. The Greek word there has the notion of perseverance, of steadiness. And that's the need of the Christian disciple. Steadfastness. Steadfastness. That's not a, if I want to use the word, virtue that is cultivated in our society anymore anyhow. But it is our need to be a steady people. A disciple is constant with the Lord. And you're about to find out is constant with his people as well. Through thick and thin, in season, out of season. If Christianity is popular or it is unpopular in trials and in joys. If the church hurts or the church grows. If life is busy or life is breezy. Steadfastness with the Lord. Can you imagine how difficult this was for the original disciples? Their faith was very unpopular, both with the Jews and with Rome. To be steadfast in this public way took courage. Right? We often think of the courage that there is in baptism. To come before the world, it's a public thing, it's not a private thing. To come before the world and to proclaim that you are Christ's. Yes, that takes a lot of courage, friends. And praise God for all of you who have been baptized before the Lord's enemies. But it is the steadfastness of the disciples that really preached day in and day out that I am with the Lord, come what may. And in verse 42, there are two areas of steadfastness to continue today. Steadfastness in the apostles' doctrine and steadfastness in fellowship. And in this heading, I want to consider steadfastness in the apostles' doctrine. That you and I as disciples of Christ are called to persevere in the apostles' doctrine. Well, you might say, Pastor, the apostles are gone. Where do I find the doctrine of the apostles? You find it here in the word of God. This is where you will find the apostolic doctrine. After all, men like Matthew, Paul, Peter, John, and others were moved by the Holy Ghost to deposit apostolic doctrine within. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 reminds us that when the Thessalonians received the word of the apostles, it was received as it was in truth, the very word of God, which is now contained in the scriptures only. And Ephesians 2.20 says that the church's foundation was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so with the apostles and prophets, what does that signify, boys and girls, children? It signifies your Old Testament and your New Testament. Both prophets and apostles have passed on, but they have left in our Bibles the foundation of faith and practice. The foundation of the church itself is contained within it, with Christ as the chief cornerstone. He said, search ye the scriptures, these are they which testify of me. And so apostolic doctrine is found here. And what that means then, if we may interpolate the text, is that you, the disciple of Christ, are called to be steadfast in the word of God and daily so. That's the calling of the disciple. Beloved, how are you going to grow your faith primarily? It is by being steadfast in the word of God. That is how that happens. You need to study the Bible. You need to study theology. You need to sit under preaching that rightly divides the word of God. You know, friends, the thing is, you're all steadfast in some doctrine or another. The question is whether it is the Bible's doctrine or the world's doctrine or your own, right? What is it that you ingest in your soul day by day? Whatever that is, is teaching you. It is teaching you something. Maybe it's the opinion of pundits or podcasters. Maybe it's whatever you happen to fall upon in YouTube. I don't know. While many of these things are fine in a secondary, proper place there, what you ought to be steadfast in is the doctrine of the Bible and not the doctrine of the world. You know, if you can tell me, and even these are sometimes good things, right? If you can tell me all about troop movements in Ukraine today, that's fine. 
But if you have little idea on what the commandments demand of you, what Christ is doing right now at the right hand of God, if you have no idea on the divine covenants, if you have no idea what the beatific vision is, what the hypostatic union signifies, there's a big problem. You need to be steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, and all of that is taught in the Word of God. The Word of God is how you grow in the Lord. Hebrews 5, we considered it not long ago, that the milk of the Word is to make way to the meat of the Word. That you are even, at a certain point in your, in your time in life, ought to be the kind of person who can teach doctrine to others. If you were steadfast in the Bible and its doctrine, you would grow thereby. And that is the calling for all of you, not just pastors and elders. Not just if you are male, also if you are female. Whether you are a parent, whether you are a child, you are not to make any excuses in this, beloved. I have lost track. I really have. If the number of saints have told me something like, I want to grow in the faith when I have more time. When the time is right. But right now I am too busy for it, Pastor. The thing is, each and every one of these people that I know have been busy with something else. Whether it is social media, whether it is their television shows, whether it is the parties they go to or whatever else, but the one thing that they won't do is they won't exercise themselves in the word of God. Let me just say this. The Lord will never give you a life so busy that his word will be crowded out. 1 Corinthians 10 tells you that he will make a way of escape out of every temptation. And so what has happened in your life is you have done this to yourself. He has not demanded you be too busy for the word of God. Just be honest. You don't want to grow in the word. Because if you did want to, you would do it. Job said that the word of God was to him of greater necessity than his necessary food. That's the priority that the disciple has in the word of God, to grow in the Lord's doctrine. But beloved, if that was the stick, here is the carrot for your encouragement, that there are so many, so many glorious things to know about your God in the Bible. There is so much to know of your Savior and your Jesus. Now let me ask you this. Do you think you will sit bored out of your mind in an eternity before Christ? No, you will be enraptured as he feeds you what? More and more knowledge of himself. His divine nature is awesome and we are called to grow in the knowledge and doctrine of Christ. The born again heart actually finds their refreshment sitting under the shadow of Christ. And here's the thing as well for your encouragement. Steadfastness in doctrine leads to steadfastness in life. Those who know the word of God Those who know its doctrines well, they are steady in life. Show me a man or woman who loves Christ and is constantly learning of him, imbibing his truth, living it out, and I will show you a steady man or woman. Constant. What does the scripture say? Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed, what? to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. You are going to be tossed to and fro. Your life is going to be unmoored if you do not soak up the doctrine of the word. And it's interesting, right? Right before that text, he says, he has given some to be apostles and some to be prophets and some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. But the apostles gone. Pastors and teachers help teach the doctrine of the apostles to you. Not their own doctrine, but the doctrine of the word. You know, as we think on that idea that those who are steady in the word, growing in doctrine, growing in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior himself, right? These are the ones who are most steady in life. Do you remember that saying that is attributed to Spurgeon? What did he say? He said something like this. um, A Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't, right? One who is in the word of God constantly, who knows their God and he knows their duty to God, is constantly with the Lord and is taken through life's trials and tribulations. Now, the challenge for the Reformed Christian, for the one who probably loves doctrine and has probably been emphatically saying amens, though 
as Reformed Christians, probably silently so, is to make sure that their life, that their life reflects the doctrine of the word. Consider the awful warning of 2 Timothy 3, 5 through 6. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. For of this sort are they which creep into houses and lead captive silly women laden with sins, led away with diverse lusts. Here's the thing. Ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 3, 5-6. through 6. There is a form of godliness that denies the power thereof. And to my grief, I have lost track of the number of men that this text describes. Men ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. You know, if the word is taking root in your heart, you would not only have a form of godliness, but vital, life-giving godliness that the baptism you have come under signifies. What did 1 Thessalonians 2.13 say? That the word of God works effectually in those who believe. I want you to consider how doctrine and manner of life were vitally connected for the Apostle Paul. 2 Timothy 3.10 But thou hast fully known my doctrine. Okay, there's doctrine. But here comes manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. His manner of life reflected the doctrine he knew. His patience, his charity, his love for God and others. He lived by God's grace a Christly life. Not just having a form of godliness. I know the creed. I know the confession. I know what is true in the scripture. But he used his manner of life to vindicate his doctrine. Why would anyone listen to anything we have to say about Christ if your life does not in some way represent the graciousness of the Savior and the love of God? If you cannot say in some way, right, imperfectly, as the apostle did, follow me or imitate me as I imitate Christ. In that, I often run into a kind of Christian that only studies the doctrines they like. So they listen to sermons and podcasts and read texts only associated with the things that they care for. But really, they're no better than those who have itching ears, especially if they have no interest in how to live out their faith. That is not what the text here has to signify about being steadfast in the Apostle's doctrine. Because what the Apostle Paul said in the 20th chapter of the Acts is he, the Apostle, shunned not to declare unto you all the counsel of God. All of it. Not just the parts you like. Even the stuff that does not tickle your fancy. And I think that ministers run into this all the time and are tempted, actually, to cater to such things. But they ought not, Right? For instance, here's what usually happens. Preach a series on what people want to hear. Then the people will come and then they will worship God. But if they're not interested in the text or the topic, where are they? Not found in the courts of the Lord. You see, we can have a kind of itching ear. But beloved, you are called to persevere, to run the race well, looking unto Jesus for everything that he has to say to you. You be steadfast in the Bible and the Lord by his word will help you persevere. And this is a matter for your encouragement because what the Lord will do to his children is he will press you forward into a greater experimental knowledge of himself. He will cause you to apply the word of God to every stage and station in your life. Whether you deal with family, health, business, death, forgiveness, hatred, love, pain, or joy. The Bible has something to say about each of those things and many, many more. And you need to be steadfast in the doctrine of the word so that you can preemptively condition your soul to know the will of God for you before the difficulties come, when you have need of endurance. You already know what the word says. And as you persevere in life, continue in what you have already learned. 1 Timothy 4.16 Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them. When temptations come, do not forget what the Lord has taught you. Walk by faith and not by sight. When it seems like following the doctrine of the word will be to your hurt, you swear to your hurt, I will follow God. You'll be tested in that way. 
So for that, and I know my time is, is slipping away quickly, so I'll leave that there for you, and uh, we can consider those matters another time perhaps. Let's consider our final head, constant in fellowship. So they were steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, but also steadfast in fellowship. They continued uh, in fellowship with the apostles and one another. Verse 44, and all that believed were together. This is the doctrine, and this is another apostolic doctrine that we call uh, the communion of the saints. That we in Christ enjoy fellowship with him, but also with one another. And as we come into the church by way of the membership covenant, by profession of faith and baptism, we have to see ourselves and these two dear sisters, right, as well, as members of one another. We see ourselves as the body of Christ, not disassociated from one another, not just me, my Bible, and Jesus, but all of us together as the people of God, the body of Christ with Christ as our head. And this is the glory of it, right? In each of us, and I always marvel on this, in each of us, we perceive something more of Christ as we look on each other. This one is wise, like Christ is wise. This one is bold for the gospel as Christ is. That one is full of heavenly wisdom. This one is full of the compassion of the Lord. And together we see these Christly graces, and we see more of Jesus, and we follow our brethren in the ways that they follow him. And our, what is our joy? Our joy is in being together because the aroma, the savor of Christ is all about each other. And you find in verse 46 that they continue daily with one accord together, both in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, and did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. They were together as one body, both in the place of worship and also from house to house, they had this great desire to be with one another. They truly were, as they understood it, contramundum against the world. And this is the will of God for you. And this is the desire of Christ for you. In John 17, through 23, before our Lord uh, was crucified, resurrected, and raised to glory, he prayed, and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. What? That they may be one even as we are one, I in them and thou in me, that they may be perfect in one. This is not an astonishing prayer, beloved. Your Savior's desire is that you be one, even as the Father and the Son are one. So the question is, will you give him the desire of his heart? Will you come together to be one body? Will you enjoy Christian fellowship and communion? You know, united by Christ, we share in Christ with one another. In two weeks, as you heard, we'll come to the communion table. We share in one bread and one cup. And what does that signify? We share in the same Christ. How can we come to the table if we don't desire fellowship with the brethren? You know, there's some people who only show up to church on the communion day, right? Now, what that signifies about their understanding of Christ is bad. Worse of all, I think. But then secondary, what it also means about their union with the body of believers also says something, doesn't it, as well? That how can they come to the table to sit there with, their, with Christ's people, but they don't really desire fellowship with him? It's really to make a mockery of the table itself. But the desire for communion and fellowship serves as a great testimony, beloved. What does it testify to? And this is important, that you are saved. I don't think we, we understand that as well as we should. First John 1 John 1.3 That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with who? The Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. If you have no desire for fellowship with His people, beloved, that is a dangerous thing. You might not have the fellowship you believe you have with the triune God. Many who have ended up on the road to apostasy, what you first find in them is they have given up on God's people. And then you find out they never really had fellowship with God himself. You are called, as the disciples were though, to be steadfast in it. And what that speaks to, and I'm mindful of this, because many are often hurt in the church, and, and many are often have many sorrows among their brethren, is that you are to persevere regardless. You need encouragement for it. I need too. 
But you are to think on this, that we are to persevere, remembering that Jesus loved even the ones who have wounded me, that he died for their sins and mine too. So how could I become bitter towards those who are Christ's people? And how can I give up on God's people if Christ would not give up on them? You need to be steadfast when it comes to the fellowship and communion of the saints. You know, the path that pain leads to is often bitterness. And what you often find in that is the bitter root of apostasy is germinating in that. When you give up on God because you give up on his people and you stop coming to the place where Christ says he will be when two or three are gathered in his name. You are, all of you, eternally bound together in Christ. You are going to be, every believer here is going to be with one another for eternity. And so you are to love one another today. And you are to have a singleness of heart. Verse 46, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. And what that is, and we need to remember this, is this is not automatic so often, right? Ephesians 4 says that we endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. If you've ever thought fellowship and communion with God's people is easy, it's not. It takes work. It requires constant prayer. It requires constant prayer. It needs even constant rebukes at times. It requires exercises of charity, of love, of covering offenses in that way, of self-denial. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Many are discouraged in the church because unity does not seem effortless. It is not easy. It is hard at times. It will be effortless in one place, in glory. But on earth, it requires the grace of God. And the apostles taught that. As you see, churches like the Corinthian church, where the apostle has to beg in God's stead that ye perfectly be joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Offenses are going to come. And the devil is going to sow discord to separate brethren from one another. And what happens as soon as you separate? The devil, as as a roaring lion, is going to pounce and devour you. And our fellowship is not complete if we merely like to hang out with each other. True Christian fellowship is filled with service and love. I'll cover this more tonight. Verses 44 through 45. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods, and parted them to all men as every man had need. They gave voluntarily to each other. They thought on one another. They looked on what their brother or their sister might need. And you will take a vow shortly, congregation, when these two sisters are joined and received. It will be this. Do you, the members of this congregation, welcome into your fellowship these who have now professed their faith in Christ and have been received by your session? And do you promise what? to help and encourage them in the Christian life. Don't take that vow rashly. Take it with meaning. It's a solemn thing to vow to the Lord. So help them, encourage them, pray for them. Uh, Hebrews 10.24 says, Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. By God's help, stir up love for one another, brethren. Consider each other often. Think on one another. Pray for one another. The same Savior that has loved you has loved them. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. You say you love God. Are you a liar? Do you love your brother? Do you love your sister also? Ask, do I love my brethren? And think specifically on the brethren, especially in your communion here. Because the word says, if you cannot love your brother that you or sister that you have seen, how can you love the God you have not? And there's another marker of the communion of the saints, something to be steadfast in. Verse 42, and in prayer. Sometimes I think we ignore how the Lord Jesus taught us to pray. He said what? Our Father, which art in heaven. Not my Father, our Father. What does he signify in that? 
that God's children, the family of God, gather together to pray to him together as it was in that church then. Do not neglect meeting with each other for prayer. In this congregation, we have two prayer meetings conducted each week. Or you can just grab one another and pray outside of those meetings. But you are called to pray with one another. And to persevere in prayer with each other will cause you to persevere. This is what we don't realize. How often do you gather with other believers to pray before your Father's presence? Let me leave that thought with you there. That you might answer it to the Lord. Well, such steadfastness in doctrine, fellowship, and prayer is the apostolic aim. And all of this redounds to the glory and praise of God for what he has done in Christ. We hear that verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. This is what we look for in true revival. That's what this is, is a picture of revival. And it is in this environment that the Lord added daily such as should be saved. This is what we need to pray for, that the Spirit would be poured out in our church and in every church in such a way that God's people would be steadfast in the Word, steadfast in fellowship, steadfast in praise, steadfast in prayer, seeking the face of God together, crying out, what? Abba, Father, our Father, help us. Looking out for one another, loving Christ, loving the brethren, and that is a foretaste of eternity. So pray, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven today, that you may taste and see this kind of Christianity prevailing once again. It's promised for us in the word of God, in the, in the prophets, that the time would come that we would all grab one another and go before Zion making a covenant with God. And insofar as it depends on you today, live this way and encourage especially your sisters who will be joining our congregation. And sisters, as you join and you think of this beginning here in this church, I know it's not a beginning of your Christian life, but this beginning as you take the membership vows, remember what God says. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit than the proud in spirit. And as you think on that, remember how much better the end of your race will be than today's excitement. The end will bring you the beatific vision before Christ's throne. The end will bring you a resurrection. There will, be, there will be no more pain, and I know one of our sisters especially is longing for this. The wiping away of all your tears. The end will bring you the eternal weight of glory, won't it? All of that, I'm not making up. That is what you find if you are steadfast in the apostolic doctrine of the word of God. And that is how you will persevere. So be patient in spirit, all of you, and be steadfast with the Lord and his people. May God help you and may God help us all in that. Amen. If able, please rise for prayer. Our Father and our God, we have a great need for patience, Father that having endured and persevered, we might receive the promise. Would you help your people here be steadfast, immovable, ever abounding in the work of the Lord, ever being with the Lord? Father, we confess that we are often imbibing the things of the world with pleasure. And then we ask ourselves why we have no strength to endure the evil days that are upon us. So Father, give us this desire to be steadfast both in the word of God and with one another. Help us to love one another well. Help us to love your word and the Christ that is signified in the word of God. And so, Father, we pray now, especially as we prepare to receive these new members, that you would add your blessing, your own blessing to the word of God as it has been preached. And would you bless your people here, that they would ever be steady with the Lord, that they would find that the end is better than the beginning of the race as they come into the heavenly glory. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Please be seated.